Hi, it's Olivia Rosenman here and I just wanted to let you know that to celebrate the Sydney Writers' Festival and all of the great minds that we have in town this weekend, we are releasing four special episodes in conversation with festival guests. You can find them all on your podcast player. Enjoy. Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Olivia Rosenman and today we are speaking with Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar, who is in Sydney for the Sydney Writers' Festival. Mikhail Zigar has just published a new book, All the Kremlin's Men, an unprecedented insight into the inner workings of the Russian government and of Putin himself. Mikhail Zigar is a veteran Russian journalist and he's also the founder of Project 1917 Free History, a website which documents the Russian Revolution using primary sources. Mikhail Zigar, welcome to Sydney and thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for, for having me. In your new book, you write that Putin began his presidency convinced that he could build good relations with the West, but that by his second term, he'd turn against the West and become, in your words, a world-weary Slavophile philosopher. What brought him to this point? Actually, uh, during three terms of, of his presidency, he, uh, he had a lot of attempts to... Uh, to become closer to the West. Initially, from the beginning, he wanted to make friends with with his foreign partners like Tony Blair, whom he chose like a, as his role model, and he wanted to look like Tony Blair a lot. Then um, he wanted to make friends with uh, George W. Bush and wanted to be treated as an equal partner. And probably that was, uh, in the beginning, uh, the main factor of his disillusionment and disappointment. He didn't feel respected. He didn't feel, he didn't feel that that he was a, an equal partner because actually for George W. Bush Russia uh, was never a superpower and, and to his point of view he, he never wanted to consider Russia to be an uh, equal partner to the United States. He, according to, to his advisors in Bush's um, point of view Russia was like another European country, big Finland or big Denmark and that was not the, uh, the point uh, Putin uh, would feel uh, flatter, uh, flattering. There were a, l- a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, miscomprehensions. First, uh, actually, Putin even uh, even tried to get the invitation for Russia to join NATO, and that that was his rather bold dream. Although uh, in Russia, especially in those establishment circles, there are a lot of stereotypes and prejudice against NATO. But Putin asked um, ex Secretary General. Uh, that time Secretary General of NATO, Lord Robertson, to invite Russia to that uh, alliance. And he he had uh, an answer that, you know, we have a certain procedure, you have to fill in the application form and stand in a line. And that was one of the uh, moments when uh, when uh, Putin felt a bit humiliated, he, he felt disrespected. And at the same time, he felt he, his paranoia started growing. He could not believe that that um, all those uh, foreign leaders just underestimate Russia. He, he, if um, anybody explained to him that that you know George W. Bush thinks that that Russia is, is a big Finland, uh, he would never believe it. 
in that. And that's why he always thought that if those foreigners are so polite, but they but they um, act in a in a different way. They 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 do not form that manner. Uh, he expected them them to do. He thought that that he might be uh, cheated by them. Uh, they uh, they are not sincere. They are trying to to create some conspiracy probably, and that probably in uh, in the end of his first presidential term, uh, he started believing in a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, he started believing that uh, there are some schemes, there is a plan to overthrow him. When he uh, when he heard Bush doctrine that United States have to uh, support democracies all over the world and to uh, install new democratic regimes, he thought that they were talking about him. Uh, and actually, that that was the end of uh, uh, of, of his politics of rapprochement with the West. You wrote the book based on interviews with Putin's inner circle. How willing were they to talk? Actually, that was very hard. Uh, it took me seven years uh, to write the book. Seven years of those off-the-record interviews. Uh, first, in, in Russia, that's impossible to take on-record interviews with uh, with politicians if you want them to to speak <laughs> truthfully. That's, that's just impossible. So from the very beginning, I warned that that um, that I was writing a book that uh, I shall now quote um, them directly, and only those uh, phrases they they agreed to be quoted I'll use f- for the book, and th- the majority of the interviews uh, would be off the record. And then I had seven years to convince uh, many people to talk to me. Actually. I had my reputation as as an independent journalist and as a editor in chief who was running the only independent news TV channel in Russia. For some, that was a, a good sign because they, they they knew me as a, as a decent journalist. For some, that was uh, that was a minus because they 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 were afraid of of just approaching me. So, some of them were curious. They they knew they of course knew the TV channel. They could not imagine. They, they they would ever uh, give interview for that TV channel live, but but that was kind of a challenge to look at me and to just to feel what is he, what he's about. I understood that uh, all of them were lying, and that was the biggest challenge for me because every everybody lies, and uh, I had to compare all those hundreds of versions of truth. I had to read almost all the major Russian newspapers uh, since 1999 till 2014, uh, just to make a list of all the facts day by day, what was really happening, just to have a possibility to to check when uh, they are lying, when uh, they are uh, moving facts to to different dates. So that was very long uh, and very uh, routine work to to check what is true and what is not true. I can't imagine for you personally that publishing this kind of book is entirely without risk in Russia. Were there any repercussions for you after having published the book? Oh, you know, that was that, that was an, uh, an adventure, I, I would say. Uh, because initially, when I was looking for a publisher, and uh, there was a couple of pub- publishers willing to, uh, to publish the, the book, we, we, had a, we had a precondition that the publisher should have promised to publish the book within six months after uh, we signed the contract or to give the rights back to me. 
because uh, there are cases uh, in Russian book market when publishers sign the contracts with the authors and the book never appear. So I I had to be very careful with that. Why is that? Is it that the publisher is put under pressure to not publish the book or is there um, some internal reason? Yeah, probably some big publishers uh, dependent uh, on the state agencies, for for example. There, there is an internal mess in inside the publishers. One manager signs the contract, uh, then after that the high uh, general manager um, realizes that the book could be dangerous and it's better just to lose some little money but never risk uh, the total business and the, the reputation of, of the publishing house. I, I was lucky t- uh, to choose the, the really independent uh, publisher not a very big company, but but really independent, and at the same time they they uh, they had uh, another very interesting precondition. There was a point in the contract that that I should give give them back my advance payment if uh, all the copies of the book are arrested. They suspected that that possibility um, could could turn up, but after all, we were lucky. The the book was published, and it uh, it is still being uh, being sold in uh, in all Moscow and Russian bookstores, and it became a bestseller. As much as 150,000 copies have been sold so far, and that's actually the, the best result for 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 nonfiction in Russian history. And you know, I have no explanation why. Why it was that successful? I know that some Russian officials, uh, some top-level bureaucrats, were very disappointed with the book and, and were were uh, were insulted by some paragraphs. Uh, at the same time, a lot of people, um, including very top-level state officials, um, publicly said this. Yeah, that's eighty percent true. Probably many people uh, considered that book to be to be rather unbiased, and that's why it doesn't it doesn't look like a propagandist book from neither side. It's it's not a book written by an opposition leader. Uh, it's not a, a book written by pro-Putin propagandists. So it's it's something in the middle. Have you heard? Has Putin commented on the book at all? Uh, no, of course not. Uh, I I've never heard anything about uh, about his reaction, and I suspect he uh, he never reads books. I I know that that his press secretary Dmitry Peskov has read it, and that was his phrase that the book has got eighty percent of truth. That's an achievement for me because a lot of journalists, my friends, told me that if Peskov says that eighty uh, percent truth, uh, that means ninety-nine. <laughs> so, in the past few months, we've seen the New Yorker allude to Russia's interference in U.S. politics with a cover portrait of Putin and the magazine's title in Russian. More recently, Time magazine's cover featured a mashup of the White House and Moscow St. Basil's Cathedral. Do you think that this sort of outspoken coverage has any effect on the Russian leadership? I've never seen anything so flattering to Vladimir Putin uh, than this. You know, that's his dream came true. We started our conversation with President uh, Putin's desire to be respected in the West. Now he's got that. I think he's happy. Uh, you haven't mentioned the the CNN documentary called "The Most Powerful Man in the World." I think it's all very impressive. I think that that's great exaggeration. He is, of course, not that powerful. He he is not controlling the White House, and he, uh, that. 
idealization of Vladimir Putin, that, that idea that he is a mastermind of a huge plan to conquer the world or to control America, that he controls Donald Trump, that's so untrue. Um, but anyway, I, I'm, I'm more than sure that, that they are happy. He has achieved his dream to be a respected uh, global leader. And then a lot of Russians uh, love the fact that uh, Russian president is, is so respected all over the world, that he has made Russia great again, that Russia is, is considered to be a superpower again. So that's, that's even more effective than, than Russian state propaganda, I, I, I would suppose. Have you watched House of Cards? Yes, uh, only only first two seasons, but uh, uh, I watched less than than Vladimir Putin because he loves House of Cards and that's his American politics textbook. He he learns how American uh, political si system is working from from that series. What about the depiction of him though in in that show? How truthful is it, do you think, or how well have they depicted him? I don't. He's not the important character. The most important character is Frank Underwood, the, that evil American president. And and Putin truly believes that that's how it works. He always recommends his uh, freshly appointed ministers to watch uh, all the series, because they need to know how it works. They they need to to see the face of the enemy. He has always thought that all those talks about about morals, about uh, values in American or European politics, that's, that's all hypocrisy. And that every time he is lectured about human rights or about uh, liberal values, uh, he's being cheated. He never trusted uh, Barack Obama or Angela Merkel. And, but, but before he had no proof, or at least something he considered to be proofs, but mostly that was his inner prejudice. But that film is a smoking gun for him. Now at least he knows that everything he has been suspecting was right. So you mentioned the CNN documentary and said that to consider Putin as the most powerful man in the world. That was a bit of an exaggerated uh, statement. But I just want to ask more generally, how good or bad a job do you think the English-speaking media does of covering Russia and Russian politics? I think that's not the best the best service for for American society because that's uh, to my mind a much more a manipulation uh, with with some fears uh, and stereotypes and you know uh, that reminds me a lot of those cons conspiracy theories I've been watching on on Russian TV channels for many years uh, because Russian stereotypical uh, portrayal of American foreign policy is that there is anti-Russian conspiracy initiated by CIA and CIA and Pentagon are trying to dismantle Russia and to to ruin the state, to divide it into to se several regions, to, to take Siberia and so on and so on and everything what happens is part of that global conspiracy. The revolution in Ukraine is a part of uh, America's attempt to overthrow Putin's regime anti-corruption uh, investigation in FIFA in soccer uh, is a part of that plot to take future 2017 World Cup from Russia so it's it's very sophisticated conspiracy theory and when I when I watch all those documentaries and all those news in American media uh, I think that's the same you just uh, need to change the word CIA for word Putin 
And now you've got a huge conspiracy initiated by Putin against America and Europe. He's trying to, to install his puppets. He's trying to affect the, the outcome of the elections. That's a huge uh, conspiracy theory, and that's a mistake. So you don't think that there's any truth to the allegations of Russian interference in the election? Uh, you know, I don't think that uh, that idea that, that there was a strategy is is right. Putin is not a strategic player. He doesn't have a plan. He He's done a lot of different things. Every time that, that was a reaction, he, he's a tactical player, not a strategical. So you said on Monday night on Q&A that everyone knows that going into politics in Russia means risking your life, your freedom, your family, your reputation and your money. That's a pretty depressing prospect for young people in Russia. What would it take to restore a functioning political system? Oh, that's the most the most serious question. Uh, I don't know answer for. You know, we've we've got a problem. So-called uh, Russian stability is the major factor of our instability because we we don't have uh, real institutions, and for many Russians, Putin is considered to be the most important factor of of the stability. He believes that he is the only man to save the country. People are scared of asking questions: What is going to ha- to happen after him? We've got no political process. We've got no politicians except for for one opposition leader whose name is Alexei Navalny. Everybody is afraid of taking part in any independent political movements. They have seen a lot of examples how independent politicians on local level, on regional level, on national level uh, were persecuted, were imprisoned. And just a a lot of tragic stories um, happened during the last years. I see no, no way out so far. Next year, we're going to have the new presidential election. Probably Putin is going to run for his fourth term. And, and he's going to win. There is no alternative candidate. Even Alexei Navalny, the only opposition candidate who could turn up during that electoral campaign. And we don't know for sure if he's going to be allowed to run or not. But anyway, even if he runs against Putin, he's got no chances of, of winning. But that's okay. The most important question, what happens next when Putin is um, is out of power? When when um, he runs out of batteries? We're going to, to have no institutions, no political leaders, and no political culture to, to be a substitute for that current political system. And I think that's the most scary challenge we face. Russia ranks 148th of 180 countries on the World Press Freedom Index. Reporters Without Borders describes it as an oppressive environment for those who try to maintain quality journalism. State-owned media bombard the population with propaganda, and most independent media have either been brought into line or harassed out of existence. What is it like working as a journalist in Russia? First, I need to say a couple of words in favor of independent journalism because because it exists. I think the fact that my book has been published in Russia and uh, is being sold in Russia, that that's uh, kind of a proof that some level of freedom of, of speech is still there. There are some independent media, and that's very difficult to survive. Actually, our TV channel, TV Rain, was very successful independent uh, news TV channel from 
2010 to 2014, actually for only four years. And then uh, we, we became a victim of coordinated attack. That was a huge smear campaign with a lot of people accusing us uh, of some hypothetical uh, crimes. Uh, we, we were blamed to insult the memories of uh, those fallen during the Second World War and so on and so on, to be pro-Nazi and pro-fascists and uh, traitors and so on and so on. Uh, as a result, all, all the major cable and um, satellite n networks uh, switched us off and we, we lost uh, 90 percent of the audience and that that was not the initiative actually of those cable operators they had direct phone calls from kremlin and they would they were demanded to to drop us so that was really painful campaign against the independent tv channel and so that tv channel still exists but now it's much more just an online tv channel with uh, 60,000 viewers monthly not not 20 million as we used to have three years ago. So it's difficult, but at the same time, it's more or less possible. It's not actually dangerous to be an independent journalist in Russia. You risk your, your job. You can lose your job if you're a bald guy. Your newspaper or your website uh, could suffer problems, economical problems. Mostly you are not risking your, your life unless you have problems with really uh, dangerous guys like like Chechen President Ramzan Kadyrov, who's got the reputation of, uh, of of a scary person. A lot of journalists were attacked, or some of them even killed, after coincidentally after writing uh, investigative reports about situation in Chechnya. And the second thing I, uh, I must add that it looks like Russia is rather progressive country in terms of of social media and social journalism. All the mainstream paper media is that. That's a global trend. But uh, in Russia, there are political reasons for that trend, not only economical as elsewhere in the world. In many other countries in the world, the mainstream paper media are going to, to be that within a decade. And in Russia, it, it has already happened the new age of the digital media has already started in Russia because it's very difficult and very expensive to print a newspaper or to have a proper TV channel. It's very cheap and efficient to have your own uh, video blog on YouTube, to have your private um, uh, news investigative website. And we, we've got a lot of that. Actually, we have a lot of people who are not supposed to be journalists to make that job journalists usually do. Charity foundations, some volunteer organizations conduct real investigative reports. That's really important for journalism and for, for civil society in the country. Can you tell us a bit about Project 1917 Free History and why you wanted to create a project like that and who is the audience in, that you intended it for? You know, initially after quitting TV Rain, I, I felt that that I'm a bit tired with that news agenda. I cannot, I don't want to produce the news about Putin's regime on a daily basis because nothing changes and nothing is happening. But at the same time, I I decided to cover as media really important events, but which are not happening now. 
And that's why we started Project 1917 that looks like actually a social media, as if internet existed 100 years ago, and as if in, in the year 1917 all the main characters could, could have an access to internet and could write their diaries, post them online. That, that's a documentary uh, project. We've collected all the diaries of all the worldwide celebrities, Russians and not only Russians, It's, uh, it's mainly focused on the uh, Russian revolution of that year, but not only. Uh, we've got um, Albert Einstein and Franz Kafka, the First World War, um, Russian Valley, uh, Pablo Picasso. So more than 2,000 characters acting and writing on a daily basis. So every day you can, you can watch and you can read what is happening this day exactly uh, 100 years ago. That looks like, like a series, but not TV series, but uh, much more text series. That's online drama, actually, but documentary drama. And I consider it to be like the new genre, uh, the new genre of learning history, of teaching history, probably, of telling the story about the past. That's much more an educational project. Because I think that in today's Russia, that's very important, not only to give people information about what's happening today, but also to, to give them a background information about the past. Because first, uh, history is usually used as an instrument in, in Russian's propaganda. And uh, when current propaganda is trying to prove that, that Russia is, is an empire and has always been an empire, and that's that's we should be proud of. Probably it's it's possible and that's needed to show another perspective, to show the history of Russian civil society that has uh, a great and very impressive history of uh, fighting for freedom. Actually, 1917 is a very important year for Russian civil society. That was a year when Russia became the first country in the world to ban death penalty. Uh, that was the, one of the first European countries uh, to give women uh, voting rights. That was very progressive for that period. Many major countries like France, United Kingdom or United States uh, made that quite <laughs> quite later, quite a bit later. That that part of history is is not known in Russia and abroad as well, because a lot of a lot of people in the world uh, have certain stereotypes about uh, about Russian Revolution. It seems for many that that Vladimir Lenin was the main character and he was the man who toppled the last Russian uh, emperor Nicholas II that that's not true and i think that's that's very important for uh, first that's very important for some kind of self-consciousness of of the nation uh, and especially that's important for young people for, and and mainly this project is the main idea of that project is to to show some some broader perspective and to get rid of some stereotypes especially among young people because for for them this format is much more readable they they get used to that format they they do not consider it as reading when they uh, have their iphone and get the information from so, social networks they're just scrolling and and that's and that's the way they consume all the information um, the project is very is very popular in russia It's probably the most, the one and only popular historical project. Uh, we've got a, a lot of young people watching it daily, and uh, we've got a lot of feedback from abroad as well. Initially, we we didn't plan to start an English version. 
and we have it from January. So project1917.com, that's working working project, and that's that's a unique uh, collection of all the diaries of of Russian Revolution. But at the same time, that's the completely new genre of of online literature. All right, and I would recommend everyone check it out. It's fascinating. Thank now, you. Um, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast player you are using. Stay in touch on Facebook and Twitter and do let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. Catch you next week.